you'll have the sense that you have gathered with the people of God, not attended a gathering, but you have gathered. And so it's, a, it's an amazing privilege that we have to walk through God's word each week as the church. And so we want to be true to that this morning. And so if you have a copy of God's word, I would love for you to join me this morning in Ephesians 5. So we're walking through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we're going to look a little more at Ephesus. We've not really talked a ton since week one about Ephesus. But this morning, the context is going to lend itself for us to dig in and look a little more at what was taking place in Ephesus. And so we're just slowly making our way through this chapter five. And we talked last week how we're really kind of almost in a series within a series that we're just really wanting to just walk very slowly through chapter 5 and glean all the, the, the truths that it has for us about the beautiful design that God has for his creation. And so last week, um, our discussion was rooted in this idea that if we are in Christ, if we're in Christ, things change. Okay, so if we are in Christ, truly in Christ... Things change. We, we, we don't come to Christ in our confession, but yet remain unchanged in our hearts and lives. It doesn't work like that. That's not his design. We get Jesus as Savior, and then we submit our lives to him as Lord. And this is a radical change that happens. And Paul has told the church at Ephesus that it is not, he said, look, it's not about little subtle moral adjustments. It's not about subtle moral changes. But it is literally about moving from death to life. He says that's the drastic nature of what it means to be in Christ. We don't start here and say I'm in Christ and there's this little bit of a moral adjustment. But we say that I was dead And I was brought to new life because of Jesus. That is very drastic. Francis Chan says it like this. He says, too many Christians are content with appearing to be a bit more moral than the people around them. But the difference between a true Christian and a non-Christian is not about subtle moral distinctions. It's the difference from being alive and being dead. And so Paul paints this picture for the church at Ephesus. He paints this visual picture of the church at Ephesus by describing for them what this process actually looks like. That it is a putting off of the old self. We, we put off the old self. This is in, an, in, a, re, uh, in a, a redemptive way. It's also in a daily way that we are constantly reminding ourselves. We put off the old self that was defined by sin and we put on the new self that through Christ is the life characterized by the righteousness that he brings. And so in our text last week, Paul tells the church at Ephesus that they are to be imitators of God. They're to be imitators of God. And he says that in this, we see several reasons why following after Christ is an imitation of him. We talked about how we're imitators as his children. So we don't watch him from a distance as someone we don't know and then try to adopt his mannerisms. But instead we say, well, he's our father and we, have, we interact with him. We learn of how, who he is and then we put that into practice. We also said, secondly, that we are to be imitators of God's love. That we love out of the richness of love that we have received. We talked about also how we're to be imitators of God's sacrifice. And this is going to spill right into what we're going to talk about this morning. 
That just as Jesus was willing to sacrifice all, we in turn not only are sacrificial outwardly in our actions and willing to sacrifice all for the sake of the kingdom, but we're willing to sacrifice self for the sake of following Jesus. Be imitators of Christ's sacrifice. And this is where I want us to settle in this morning. Because following after the creator's design involves sacrifice where we realize who God is and in light of that truth, who we actually are. So I want to begin with a question this morning that I think we need to wrestle with as we walk through this text. And the question that we need to answer as we address this week and the next two week topics that two weeks topics that Paul mentions this morning, and that is this. Does God rule and reign over your life and over all creation? Now, I want to personalize that. When I say your, I'm asking, do you believe, because this is foundational for what we're going to look at this morning, do you believe that God is the ruler over life and creation? Do you believe that he, that who, he is who he says that he is? That he is the ruler over your life. He is the ruler over creation. Let me walk through this for just a second. If God is who he says that he is, if he is the creator of the universe, if he is the designer of your life, if he is the sustainer of life, and if he tells us, if we believe that, if we believe that he is Lord over all, that he is God and we are not And we realize that because he is God and we believe that truth that he has reign over everything. He can set the design for how we do life because he's God and we are not. And so in that place, if we believe that, and if he tells us to surrender our lives to him as the Lord of our life, then we have to ask ourselves, if he is God, are we willing to surrender our lives to him no matter what that requires? No matter what that means I walk away from, no matter what that means for me, am I willing to surrender my life to God no matter what that requires? Or maybe ask it this way, are we willing to come to God on his terms? Are we willing to come to him on his terms? So so follow with me, God is God, we are not, he's creator, we're creation, he is immortal and eternal, we are mortal apart from Christ and temporary. And so if this is our view of God, then we must be willing to follow anything that God calls us to. For instance, what if God's word tells us that we have to, I mean, this is absurd, but that's been my trend lately in examples. Uh, does, Does God's word, what if he tells us that we have to walk backwards everywhere we go? If his word said, if you're going to follow after me, you're going to follow me backwards. I mean, does that make sense? Not, not fully to us, but, but he's God. What, who am I to question him? If he says do that, then that's what we're supposed to do. You know, that's what I will do if I follow him. Or what if God were to say, all right, listen, um, so everybody in Mississippi, if you live in Mississippi, um, you're the only residents that are, if you're a believer and you live in Mississippi, your calling is to ne- none of you can be married. If you live in Mississippi, none of you can be married. Would I like it? No, I wouldn't. But he's God. Who am I to question him? Who am I to argue with him or rationalize with him or act like I have a better idea for things than him? He is God. 
Matthew 16, 24 says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we often teach and think through that verse as if I'm saying I'm going to deny myself, which means I'm going to deny what I want and I'm going to, when it comes in relation to Christian things, I'm going to deny the the lethargical attitude that I have and I'm going to serve him. But when following after Christ, he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to deny yourself completely. The things that you wish were the case, the things that you want to be the case, the things that you want to be able to do in life, you're going to deny those things to follow after him, align with his will, and take up our cross, and then follow him. So this means that if we are to follow after Jesus, we deny self and we follow him. And so following this discussion of imitating God in the first two verses of chapter 5, talking about following after his design, Paul now is going to launch into a discussion that I think involves three areas. Now, all sin separate us from the Father. But Paul, in this particular passage, so though we're talking about sin and a heart issue at the core, we're talking about sin in general, Paul is going to isolate three things that I think was a danger to the body there at Ephesus and they needed to hear. And I think it's a timeless word that we need to hear as well. So this morning, we're going to look at the first part, which is the issue of sexual sin. Sexual sin. So I want you to see this passage this morning isn't really about sexuality as much as it is about surrendering to God, the designer who created his plan for this area. That's what it's really about. It's really not about, can I figure out what, he's, what I'm supposed to do in an area of sex as much as about to say, I gotta surrender my life to him. Whatever he says, I do, because it's his design. So this sermon this morning is going to address a timely issue in the current condition of our culture. We walk in times like we have never experienced before. The culture does not view sexual sin as sin anymore. It used to be the case that culture, because of morality and kind of a social standard, regardless of if they were followers of Christ or not, would at least look at sexual sin and affirm that that is indeed morally wrong. That is sexual sin. But we aren't in those times anymore. As the church, we must be absolute in the truth of what we believe on this topic. We have to affirm truth in the current landscape of the world. But at the same time, I also believe that as the body, we must be a welcoming place where we demonstrate the love of Christ to others with a desire to see them recapture their identity as the Imago Dei. We offer the grace that that God offered. That through seeing the beautiful creation and design of God, they might surrender their lives to him. So as we launch into this discussion this morning, if the church must be anything in this culture, we must be a safe place for sinners, including those that are sexually broken and confused. Because if the body of Christ is not a safe place for those struggling in this area, then we are living as a contradictory community to the gospel that we proclaim. And so if we put certain sins and we, and we kind of we call them sins and place them outside of the bounds of grace, then we don't quite understand what we truly believe. 
We must see that through the outworking of certain sins, though they may be different than others, we are all wrecked by our sin and we're in need of the grace of Christ in our lives. So chapter five, I want to tell you a bit about Ephesus. That'll help set the landscape for the verses we're going to look at. Ephesus was crazy. I mean, this city was, I don't even know how to compare it. It, it was a wild place, okay? I can imagine back then, the par, it, was, it was a place where people would go to have a big time. It was one of the first century giants of a city. You know, it, it was the chief commercial center for all of Asia Minor, Western Asia Minor. So it was a port city. So you can imagine that as boats would come in culturally, they had influences from all over the ancient world. And it would influence Ephesus. It also, Ephesus also had two main trade routes that came through Ephesus. So that it brought travelers constantly into the city. It was very transient. It was this unbelievable city. But one of the main structures in Ephesus, one of the main structures in Ephesus was a temple. This actually was one of the, the, the uh, uh, it was one of the ancient, uh, you know, the wonders of the ancient world. There was this temple that was dedicated to a goddess named Diana, who was the, the god of fertility. She was the god of fertility. So this structure, you know, Diana was quite possibly the most worshipped idol in all of Asia. And so she was the god of fertility. And so as the god of fertility, she was always pictured, uh, you know, even the sexuality was seen in the image they had of Diana because she was, she was always pictured as having many breasts, which would serve as a symbol of her fertility. And so people were so attracted to worship Diana because of the hope of fertility for childbirth. But this is where it got a little crazy. Because they would, they would hope for the fertility of childbirth, for long life, for protection during pregnancy and childbirth. But then they would worship her so that they might receive sexual fulfillment. And because the worship of Diana had such seductive sexuality mixed into worship. So the city was full of such perversion and such sexual impurity that the worship of Diana actually involved prostitution where the worshipers would actually be, quote-unquote, joined to the goddess Diana with the goddesses, with, her, with the goddess through her, her priestesses who were actually prostitutes. So the act of worship, a part of their worship was they would have sex with prostitutes in the temple so that they might connect to the goddess Diana on a spiritual level. So it was such a, a perverted city and had, had lost the teachings that Paul had brought them in Ephesus. And so Paul writes these words to the church who was serving in the midst of this temptation and perversion of worship. So imagine being the church that had, had learned from Christ, or from Paul directly from Christ had learned how they're to walk in this area. And then everywhere you walk, it is surrounded by people. It's surrounded by, by people who, who, are, who are sexually engaged as an act of worship. And you are the church. And so this morning, my purpose, like Paul, is not necessarily, I'm not trying to, this is not a thing about bashing culture. And talk about the sexual perversion that exists in our world. And it absolutely does. 
But the purpose, like Paul, Paul was writing to the saints in Ephesus. And so I want to challenge you this morning as Paul challenged the church to walk as the body of Christ, counterculture to the world. Listen to what God's word says. Now I do want to tell you a little bit about the context of our culture. The pornography industry in the United States, it generates $13 billion per year in the U.S., So in the U.S. alone, $13 billion is spent every year on pornography. Statistics also say that 9 out of 10 boys are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. So 90% will be exposed to pornography before the age of 18. And we are deceived, I believe, if we attempt to disconnect the growing statistics of pornography from the growing statistics involving divorce and adultery and sexual abuse and rape and molestation, it has to have some connection. Pornography is so dangerous because it is the detaching of the person from the act to where we actually eliminate the person from having a soul. So instead, we're, we, we make them an object where we empty them of any spiritual, uh, any, we eliminate their, their, that they are the imago Dei. We eliminate that. We eliminate the person. We eliminate everything but the physical. And then instead of, and, and then, we, then we use that to satisfy our own sexual urges. And I'm not going to talk just about pornography because there are a lot of sexual sins. But, but porn, porn stars do not grow up as little girls dreaming about being porn stars one day. We would be devastated if we knew the background stories that so many of them had experienced that led them to give their life to that lifestyle. We'd be horrified. And we, we should look in our hearts and say, this is an Imago Day issue. Not only for them, but for me. I have detached the soul from the body, the reality from fantasy, to the point that I am using the Imago Dei for sexual impurity. It goes on to talk about a few other statistics. 88% of unmarried young adults surveyed said that they are having sex outside of marriage. 88%. And of this same survey, 80% that identified themselves as Christian, 80%, who identified themselves as Christians say that they have had sex outside of covenant marriage. The media's marketing of sex, the cultural influence to do what feels good, this prevalence of pornography literally at your fingertips in the privacy of your own home, and the widespread loss of the design of God for sex and marriage is causing people to chase after love and acceptance and satisfaction outside of the design that God has for sex. God's design for sex and marriage is a beautiful design. It's birthed in the Garden of Eden that as the body of Christ we need to strive for. You know, why did God create sex? Well, he speaks of design in the garden where he says that I designed sex so that you may multiply more image bearers. God tells Adam and Eve, join together in relationship, become one flesh so that you can make more image bearers of God. Do you see his design in that? Initially, it's about an aspect of God's design for sex is multiplication. That as two come together, they multiply other image bearers. 
And then we know also as followers that it helps us to give the, to give the world a picture of the way that Jesus, the bridegroom, loves his church. It's a gospel picture. And so this morning, we're going to dive in and really look into a lot of detail with that. But let's, let's get into the text as, as we kind of use that as our backdrop. Let's dig in and let's see what does Paul say about design when it comes to sex. Ephesians 5. Join me. Let's read for context. Let's start in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, it should be on the screen. So he says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as that's improper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So let's first consider again the audience in Ephesus that Paul is writing these instructions to. He begins in verse 3 by issuing his instructions to the saints. He's writing to the saints. Now Paul isn't referring to the super Christians. He's not referring to the professionals. But the word saints means holy ones. And Christians in the New Testament are referred to as saints more than any other word in the New Testament. So he's writing to those who have been set apart from God. He, is, he isn't referring to a position in the church or part of the priesthood, but he is saying that those who are in Christ, the saints. And I think that this is, a, this is critical in the text because we see instantly that the power to practice purity in the discussion of sin is the power of God at work in us. That's our ability. He's saying to the saints because the saints are the ones who have the power of the spirit in them, who have a new heart that can actually walk in these ways. So we see that Paul is not addressing sexual sin in this passage as instructions to those who are apart from Christ. Because apart from Christ, they do not have a changed heart. They do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help them fight against the temptations of the world. They can't change their behavior. They can't live as holy ones because they aren't set apart through Christ. So the expectation is they will walk in the ways of the world until they find Christ. So often we want to change people before their hearts are changed. And Paul starts out by saying, look, you can't change their behavior and live as holy ones because they aren't in Christ. And so my prayer as we pursue Christ as his followers is that we would have a radical change in our hearts so that we will love Jesus more, not just have behavior modification. Jonathan Grant says this. He says, when we try to address discipleship through ideas and beliefs alone, it is like, trying, it's like pouring water on your head to put out a fire in your heart. The heart has to be changed for our actions to be changed. So if we want to follow Christ through his design, it isn't about modifying behavior and thoughts toward things, but instead it's about a heart change that overflows into our life. And so Paul begins by saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, sexual impurity should not even be mentioned for those who have been set apart from God. The unfortunate truth about our walk with Christ is we often want to get as close as we can to the line of sin without crossing it. I grew up with two brothers. 
One older, one younger. I had the middle child complex. You're like, ah, that's what's the problem. So road trips with our family were more like WrestleMania than the peaceful scenes that you see in the movies where the family is riding in the car singing road songs in three-part harmony. It was a constant discipline session where my parents would literally turn around and, and would look at us and say, all right, get in your seat. So we would line up. And then they would, y'all probably done this if, you're, if you've seen this. They would literally point to like seams in the fabric of the car seat. And they said, that's your line. They don't cross that line. So what do we do? If I'm sitting right here next to my brother, the hand goes right here. Chad's crossing the line. No, I'm not. I'm up to the line and not crossing it. You know, or if she would say like, don't touch your brother. So we'd put our finger right there. I'm not touching him. I'm not doing anything wrong. And that was kind of the nature of, of riding in the car with us. And this is us. This is us in regards to sexual temptations. Our intent is to get as close as we can to sin sexually without sinning. Instead of desiring to get as close as we can to holiness. Man, we want to get right up to the line of sexual sin and just flirt with it right here. You know, I'm not engaging, but I'm going to flirt with it right here. Instead of saying, man, I don't... I don't care. I want to get as close to holiness as I can be. I've been redeemed for holiness. I'm striving for that. That's what God wants. And Paul says here that it shouldn't even be named among you. Not a hint of sexual impurity. Shouldn't even be a chance that you could be accused of it. That's what Paul says. Now let me take just a moment on this and talk to the singles in the room for a second. God has designed sex to be practiced in the context of marriage between a husband and wife. It doesn't work outside of that design. It's a dead-end street. And if you attempt to make it satisfying, it will never satisfy, but you will bow down before the idol of sex and worship a false god. If God is God, remember the beginning, if God is God, And if we are set apart ones who have surrendered our lives to him, then we do what he says. And he says that sex is practiced in the context between a husband and wife in marriage. Saints, if you are walking with Jesus, he has called you to walk in purity. It doesn't matter the seriousness of your relationship or if you plan on getting married one day. The creator has created sex And has said that within marriage it is a beautiful gift. But outside covenant marriage it is sin. And if you see in this passage Paul is not specifically addressing sex. That's another chapter in another book. But he's talking specifically about sexual sin. So I want to highlight three words that he shows us that we have to be warned against. The first, Paul says we need to to watch out against sexual immorality. So let's talk about sexual sin. Let's talk about this. He says sexual immorality. The word, this is so ironic, the word that we find here is the word porne. So porne would define sexual immorality in this, this particular passage. So when he says, uh, but sexual immorality should not be mentioned among you. Sexual immorality, the word we get that translation from is porne, which is the word where we get pornography. So sexual immorality in, in the Greek comes from this word, and it actually means a broad word that covers sexual sin. I see such irony in that, that the industry calls it pornography. And the root of that word is sexual sin. 
And we see in Scripture that sexual immorality, Scripture condemns all types of sexual sin. Homosexuality, fornication, adultery, lustful thoughts. It happens here. The Scriptures define all types of sexual sin. And Paul says here that for the saints... Sexual sin, no matter what it is, and I'm not just going to, you know, pick on pornography, but Paul says sexual sin, sexual immorality, no matter what it is, should not have any part in those who have been set apart for himself. But here's what often happens. This is what we end up doing. See if you find yourself in one of these situations. First of all, the way we get around it is we rationalize the intensity of the sin. So we rationalize its intensity. We'll often try and talk ourselves around the issue of sexual immorality. So we say, God is just limiting us. He's just limiting us from enjoying life. He's such a stickler. But Jesus says that I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus didn't come to stifle us. Jesus came to offer us a full and meaningful life if we practice it in the context of his design. So often we'll downplay that. We'll downplay our sexual sin. We'll compare it to the world. And comparatively, we aren't in that bad a shape. So we say, I mean, it's not like I'm just sleeping around with a bunch of girls. It's just this one. I'm faithful. We're going to get married. So technically, it's not a big deal. We're going to be together anyway. We say, I'm not just looking at pornography. I'm not really looking at it. It's Twitter. It's on Facebook. It's got to be legit. What's the big deal with it? Okay, I'm not going to look at pornography. I'm going to look at Twitter. That's safe. In the context of marriage, we say, it's my wife's fault. This affair would have never happened if she had satisfied me the way a wife should. Or on the wife's side, in what is... I think equally playing to the emotions like pornography does and often in certain ways. The wife says, if he would just only love me like they love each other in the movies, I would have been satisfied. And we attempt to rationalize our behavior. This is just a natural reaction. When God approached Adam and Eve in the garden with the original sin, what did they do? They rationalized. God, it was that woman you gave me. I never ate the apple. She gave it to me. Eve says, it was a serpent. What was he doing there anyway? It's always someone else's fault. And this is what we so quickly do. But church, we must recognize the temptation and turn from it before it becomes sin. C.S. Lewis says this, we must learn by experience to avoid either trains of thought or social, social situations, which for us, not necessarily for everyone, lead to temptations. He says it's like driving a car. Don't wait till the last moment before you put on the brakes, but put them on gently and quietly while the danger is still a good way out. So we must see that first of all, what we'll do is we try to rationalize the, the, we try to rationalize the intensity of the sin. And secondly, we redefine the implications of the scripture. So our second way is if we don't rationalize the sin away, then we try to rationalize the, the implications of the scripture. God didn't really mean what he said in his word. That was something that was written ages ago for them. It was contextual. It's not for us. We've modernized. Come on, Jesus. We're in the modern times. We're cultural. We're in a new day and age. Sex is my business to be enjoyed the way that I want. It's my body. 
When Scripture says that when we come to Christ, our bodies are united with Christ. So we we redefine the, the design of sex where we'll twist scriptures to redefine the context for where sex should be enjoyed. And, and, and listen, as saints, Paul says we are to be loving, but remember it's about design. We surrender our lives not to what we want to be true, but to the truth declared in God's word. Listen to me this morning. Just because we don't agree with something in God's design doesn't mean that it isn't true. We do not shape theology by what we want to be true. Our theology is shaped by what God's word says is true. So we have to be careful that we don't redefine the implications of scripture. And then thirdly, we resist the intuition from the spirit. The truth is God is working in your heart and telling you through the spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And the Holy Spirit is pointing to you and saying, no, that's sin. And you know inside of you that it's being exposed as sin, but we still walk and cross the line. And we're simply choosing sin over righteousness. That's unfortunately the bottom line. And Paul says to the saints, sexual immorality should not even be mentioned among you. But there's a second word he uses there. Look back in verse 3. He says sexual immorality, and he also says all impurity. There's another Greek word that I want to show you. Uh, and it is the word akatharsia, akatharsia. So akatharsia was a word that where we get this word impurity. And it was a word that actually referred to those often who had leprosy that day. So they were sick and infected. And so it, this word akatharsia would literally mean to be mixed, to be mixed. So Paul was saying that for the saints... We resist sexual immorality, and then we also are making sure that we're not, that we're, that we're pure, we're not impure. So we're making sure that we must not be mixed, meaning having one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Or spiritually speaking, we are giving part of our heart to Jesus and part of our heart to the world. Paul says this can't happen. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20, look, look behind me on the screen. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Follow with me. Do you not know, if you're a saint, that your bodies are members of Christ? So shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Enjoy other sins. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God. You are not your own. Man, if I could just blast that this morning. You are not your own because you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul says your body can't be joined to God into a prostitute. Paul says that your body is a member of Christ. So to give in to sexual sin is to unite our already joined bodies in Christ with a prostitute. Or to be in Christ but to walk in pure ways. ways. And Paul says this can't happen. Now I know there are temptations there. 
Okay, so I, I'm not, I want to come across this morning very gracious towards you because I know the temptations. It's hard to be unmixed when you have such easy access to pornography. For that matter, it's hard to be unmixed when you see images. You walk through the local mall and your mind is exposed to all kinds of things. I understand that. We're a part of a, of, a, of a generation where there are social media apps for your phone. I understand this, college students. They, there are social media apps for your phones to help facilitate hookups. I know that. I know that's difficult to walk pure in those, those situations. We have been a part of a culture that actually has social services to help you commit adultery without anybody knowing it. It's hard to not be mixed when we are entertained by media and TV that is centered around sex outside of marriage and casual relationships and sex, and we call it comedy or reality TV. I know it's hard. Paul says, not a hint. Not a hint should characterize the saints. And then he lists the third word, covetousness. Now, I found it when I first read this. You might find it strange for Paul. All right, Paul, we're tracking with you, sexual immorality, impurity. And so now we're going to talk about jealousy. All right, where does that fit into this? You know, why did you throw in this conversation, in this conversation about sex, a conversation about not being jealous? But I really believe, if we're tracking this, I really believe that what Paul is actually talking about here is covetousness in regards to sex and and the body. That we actually are jealous for or greedy for someone else's body. And spiritually, I believe Paul is speaking here to a group of saints who desire the flesh more than God. And they were in the tendency of worshiping the creation more than the creator. We see this in Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 21 says that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worship and serve the Creator rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for the error. And since they had... Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, follow this. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil. Follow this. Evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They were gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Man, they they were even making up stuff to get evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only did them, but they gave approval to those who practiced them. So church, ultimately, sexual sin is a heart issue and it is idolatry. Let's boil it down to the foundation. Sexual sin is idolatry. 
The source of sin in your life in this area is rooted in a heart that is not satisfied completely in God. Your sexual sin is ultimately a worship problem. The Bible is not anti-sex. God created it. So it is not anti-sex, but instead it is pro-intimacy through God's design for sex in the context of covenant marriage. It's a beautiful gift from him. In Colossians 5, we, we read a very similar text that talks about this, that says that, that, that we must put away all these things, very similar to Romans, so that we walk in this new self, putting on the new self. So Paul says, look, if you're a saint, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, it shouldn't be even named among you because that is improper among the saints. But then he goes in, verse 4, He says, let there be no foolishness, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So Paul continues by saying that not only should our conduct not fall into sexual sin, but we must be careful about corrupt talk. I personally think that Paul is continuing to talk about this warning in the context of the conversation on sex, partly because he flows through and then talks at the end of this chapter about marriage. So I think that Paul is wanting to say that, that this con, in the context of Ephesians 5, 3, and 4, where the concern is with inappropriate sexual behavior and speech, this term he uses probably refers to the misuse of maybe an otherwise attractive quality. So maybe quick-witted, clever humor employed in a sexually vulgar way. Man, how easy is it to fall into this? How easy is it to let our conversations in this area to become sinful? But once again, I think we're back at a worship issue. Scriptures tell us this. Look, justify all you want about your, the words you use and the language you use. But Scriptures tell us this. It says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's flowing out of you. So as Christians, we definitely fall into these sins. And the grace of God is sufficient. So I think when Paul then moves into verse 5 and he talks about how you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually moral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I think what we see here is Paul is saying that those who reflect these characteristics, if, he's saying there that they, will, they must repent if they remain in them. I believe that what Paul is saying here is that though as Christians, We may fall into these sins. True Christians will not remain in them. Because persistence in sensuality and sin is a graceless state. Paul says you can be sure of this. You can take it to the bank. Those who aren't repentant, who don't have their sins covered by the grace of Jesus Christ, will not have a place in the kingdom. So Paul ends by emphasizing this point in verse 6. He diverts the conversation away from the instruction to the saints to warnings to the sons of disobedience. So those that are the sons of disobedience, who disobey, 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 never repent it, never come to the Father, says those will not inherit the kingdom. So that's a lot of information. So how can I chat? How can I, I want to, I want to leave you with something. I want to put handles on this so you can, you can hold on to it and, and walk in this. So, so let me just very briefly just tell you just a few things. I, I mean, very briefly. 
first of all, and we look again. We could we could for the sake of time, we're, we'll come back to this later. We're going we'll dig in deeper into a lot of some of the more cultural and social issues. But we've got to understand first of all the imago day and the design of the God who created man. We have to understand that first. And I want to I want to give you this conclusion. First of all, recognize that sexuality is a good gift from God. Number one, recognize that sexuality is a good gift from God. And then submit your life as the saints to the design of the creator. You know, I want to point you back to the beginning of this chapter. How do we fight against sin? By imitating God. Imitation of Christ will beautifully change us from the old way of life to the new. And there's a second thing. So we recognize that sexuality is a good gift from God. Recognize that biblical prohibitions are intended to protect something precious, not deny something pleasant. Okay? Biblical prohibitions are intended to protect something precious, not deny something pleasant. If you're walking outside of God's design for marriage, repent and turn from this empty well. It is a broken cistern that will never hold water. It will never satisfy. It's outside of the design. Number three is for singles. For singles, recognize that sexual relations are not essential to full personhood and happiness. It's not the source of your happiness. It's not the fulfillment in life for you. You have a God that is more satisfying than sexual sin, impurity, and covetedness. He is so much more satisfying. In the context of marriage... Sex is not what ultimately satisfies. Only Christ can do that. So for singles, recognize that. For married, for the married, recognize that God designed marriage to be a living parable of, the, of his commitment to the church. And we're committed to our spouse. We're committed to be pure as a reflection of our understanding that God designed marriage to be a living parable of his commitment to the church. And then I want to end with this. And that's the fifth thing. Recognize that repentance is essential to healing. Repentance is essential to healing. God's grace is for you. Heath Lambert writes this on a book on purity. And I thought this was just gold. So let me read it to you. He says, every instance of treasuring images of sexual impurity in our hearts, every eager glance at pornography, All of our lustful gawking, everything, is paid for by Jesus in his death for sinners. And this leads us to repentance. He continues. He said, the tide will begin to turn in your struggle against pornography when you begin to grasp forgiving grace and transforming grace as you learn to repent, to fall on our faces, So whatever it may be, whatever this sin, sin in general in our life, but for our conversation this morning, whatever the sexual sin is that you struggle with, the beginning to change starts with repentance. Remember, repentance is not just, I'm sorry. The repentance is saying, I'm turning from this to this. I'm turning from what I have allowed my eyes to seek fulfillment in. I'm turning to the only source of satisfaction in you. So this morning, I want to lead you towards confession during our time response. If you're not a believer, 
And in a room this size, that's the case in some. I, and, I, and thank you for being here. And I want to just encourage you. If you're not a believer, I want you to know that you are loved by the creator of the universe so much that he gave his son so that you might have eternal life despite the penalty of your sin. Your sin was absorbed by Jesus Christ on your behalf. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess through your mouth that Christ raised him from the dead, you can be saved today. That's a reality for you. And I want you to know that. Man, these people love you and they're going to hug you and say, man, thank you for being here. Their love does not touch the love the Father has for you. So if you're not a believer and you've got a friend that invited you today, and man, that you, you know they love you, I want to tell you that the love of the Father blows that out of the water. His love's so unconditional. His love reaches all depths. And he offers that to you today. If you're a believer, and if you're struggling with any sexual sin, today is the day of repentance. It doesn't matter what it is. God is merciful and forgiving. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, wash us of all unrighteousness. So this morning, my prayer is that you will see the beauty of God in your life. He has a beautiful design for you. It's a beautiful design that, that, that resonates in the worship of his creation in the context that he created it. So no matter what you're dealing with here today, I want you to know that the grace of God is available for you and sufficient. I want you to know that if you're still wrestling with some of this sin, if you're still struggling through that and you're saying, Man, I'm not even a believer, I don't know if I even believe what you're saying today. I want you to know that this is a community that welcomes you that loves you and loves you to the point that we want to point you to the truth. That's the kind of love that, that we want to show you. So if you're in that position, you're not a believer, and you're saying, man, I don't even know, this. who are you, to, and what are you, you know, how am I to believe, or why am I to believe what you say? Look, man, c- come around. Stay around. Let us love you and show you the truth that we have found. And I pray that. And may we together see that for us to continue to, pers- to persist in this sin, to say that pornography and sexual sin and lust and addiction, to say that that, ha- I just, I, I'm submitting to the power. I can't, I can't overcome it. I can't resist it. It's for us to be able to, for us to basically acknowledge the, tr- the fact that we believe that that has more power than the Spirit of God at work in our life. And that's not truth. So cling to the power that is at work in you. And may we commit our lives to God and to his design for your life in regards specifically this morning to this area of sex. So let's pray together.